Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today we're going to be talking about smart cities with Michael Hendricks of the Manhattan Institute. Doug, what is a smart city? You're going to have to listen to Michael to find out. Today we're joined by Michael Hendricks, Director of State and Local Policy at the Manhattan Institute and prolific writer. Michael, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you. Later this fall, my organization, the Lone Star Policy Institute, is hosting a Smart Cities and Liberty panel in Dallas, and Michael's going to be one of our key panelists. So that sort of leads me to my first question. What exactly is a smart city? The smart city is defined kind of as the city as a digital platform. It's basically the intersection of urbanization and digital ubiquity. It's essentially saying we've got all these smart, talented people moving into urban areas. We've got this whole knowledge economy that's growing up around the world is placing a huge premium on people living in close proximity with one another. And we happen to have, I don't know about you guys, but happen to have these supercomputers in the palm of our hands and essentially saying, well, what if we kind of merge these two movements? What could we actually get out of it? And in the best case scenario, smart cities are a vehicle for reinventing government and hopefully streamlining and transforming just everyday life in cities. But of course, there's also other perspectives that other people have in smart cities that some may not agree with. So what, like, what, what would be an example of how you bring those, you know, that technology together in a useful way? The classic example is this. You know, smartphones, uh, have you ever gone running with smartphones before? You know, I, they, don't they can... yeah, I don't run. <laughs> <laughs> if, if one were to exercise, right, if, if one were to move from point A to point B, you know, you got these little sensor technologies in the phone that can track movement up and down and side to side. Well, some cities like the city of Boston realized that they could actually track the movement of a phone up and down as a car with had the smartphone in it went and hit a pothole was able to identify what that exact particular movement felt like in the smartphone sensors how it tracked it and and so so then they could say we're going to create an app where it'll track as people with their smartphones drive across a pothole and then help map across the entire city of boston how many potholes are out there and i think that led to a clear improvement in the ability of Boston to fill their potholes. And I think that is both the classic example of smart city technology, the intersection of urbanization and digital ubiquity coming together. But for some of its critics, it's also the best example of some of the shortfalls of smart city technology, because there's this inherent, and these are probably going to be more progressive critics, but but it is a fair criticism. Um, the spread of digital technology is often not in an equal spread. And so there's going to be potentially more parts, more wealthy parts of Boston that are tracked with smartphones because people in those wealthier parts have greater access to smartphone technology. And so you get a great map of potholes in the wealthy parts and a not so great mar- map in the poorer parts. 
And so a lot of the questions around how we spread smart cities technology really comes down to access for some people. But I, I think that there's also kind of a conservative take in smart cities. And to me, it kind of comes down to a couple points. One is smart cities are not always wise cities. Uh, I think there's also kind of another point that smart cities kind of have in them this quest for a digital utopia that may not always be possible. And then I think there's another just nonpartisan critique, and that's that you know smart cities are all well and good, but there's still the problems of politics and bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Not, not, not a partisan question. It's just simply saying that you have a lot of good people trapped in bad systems in government, and simply adding in another technological layer say, making it a little easier to submit uh, your application of occupational license still doesn't necessarily solve the problem of occupational licensing, and it doesn't make it easier or simpler to get that license in the first place. That's really what we need to be solving. Yeah, when I hear you describe the smart city uh, concept, I have kind of uh, two you know, visceral uh, reactions, which are you know, maybe they kind of go in different directions. Break out in digital hives. Yeah, well, well, is it, so there's two separate ones, right? So the first one, you know, my one of my immediate reactions is, okay, so you know, I go to uh, to Washington D.C. or New York City increasingly, and you go to use the metro, and assuming that the the trains uh, show up and aren't on fire, you find that to get down to the train, you have to go down what is in theory an escalator but is in fact just a staircase because the escalators are all broken. So, you know, I, I, I guess this kind of, that, that kind of gets to the, to your point of uh, the, the bureaucracy or whatever is that, yeah, okay, maybe this would be a way to let the city know where the potholes are, what are, are, but there's probably other ways for them to figure out where potholes are. If they're not fixing the potholes, you know, maybe there's a, maybe the reason isn't, isn't that they can't figure out where they are, but there's other, there's other kind of holdups there. Uh, and then out, the opposite one is, of course, we're, you know, we're going to be tracked at all times. People are going to know where we are, and then they're going to be putting all this data into this big, you know, equations and learning all sorts of stuff about us that we don't even know. You know, that isn't that a little, a little creepy? So those are, you know, those are those are my two gut reactions. I'll I'll, I'll let you uh, respond to them, you know, however you however you want. Yeah. So let's 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 think about two two kind of use cases here. Um, so one is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, and that's the permitting process locally. Mm-hmm. So this is the process you have to go through to start a business or build a building. And right now that that process is complicated. It's costly. It's opaque. And it's ultimately built around the needs of government and not around the needs of citizens, whether builders or entrepreneurs or just normal people. And so the the potential for technology here is to help get more information into the hands of the right people at the right time. Um, it's it's the potential to have certain you know easy to use portals for people to submit for. You know, permitting applications. It's uh, implementing electronic permitting processes to just streamline the entire process. It's it's also really the potential to transform the entire process. So we can begin to say, well, you know, why don't we have a self-certification program where we have access to data across government on you, for better or for worse, and if relatively anonymized, just basically we're a 
system says, are you a, a high-risk applicant or a low-risk applicant? You know, you paid your taxes on time. You're a good citizen. You know, we have the ability to streamline um, your application to, you know, put up a fence. Now, it doesn't get rid of the fact that government is questioning whether you should build a fence or not, but it's just simply saying if it ha- if it if it is doing that, if it is if it has that level of oversight, then it's at least make it as as less onerous as possible. And then there's also the ways in which government could increase trust and information in the marketplace. So by leveraging the private sector. So rather than sending out teams of inspectors to every single restaurant across a city, you know, we already have data out there from Yelp that tells us whether a restaurant is good or not. And findings from one of our scholars, Ed Glazer, and his co-authors have shown that more often than not, Roughly 80% of the time, Yelp is going to be just as accurate as these inspectors. So maybe we can actually have the inspectors focus on the real uh, harm that's occurring. Um, we can get an early warning system for harm. And um, we could actually improve, address some real improvements here and make government more streamlined, uh, responsive, and accountable. So that's, that's a very specific use case. The other is you know, across an entire city. You see Sidewalk Labs, uh, Alphabet, godfather of Google, has created this company that's going now into a section of Toronto. And their whole vision is to build a, a city, as they call it, from the Internet up. And the whole idea is to say, what if we were just not layer, a digital layer across the old physical layer of a city, but instead just say across an empty plot of land, what would we do? If we had all the sensors in the world and all the technology in the world, what would we do? And it actually leads to some really interesting um, potential solutions that could not have been imagined before. One of my favorites is a new type of zoning. So you still have the, uh, you still have locals that want the city to feel a particular way, to look a particular way. That's, that's not going away. But instead they say, well, let's focus on the outcomes that we want. So rather than saying, you know, we're going to have a completely Byzantine zoning code that's completely indecipherable, that nitpicks everything you do. Instead, we say, well, in this particular neighborhood, well, we want as citizens is for it to be a, a quiet neighborhood. And so you can build whatever, whatever you want there, just as long as it's a quiet and peaceful neighborhood. Well, thanks to ubiquitous sensors that can track noise, we can say, are we achieving that outcome or not? So outcome-based zoning now all of a sudden becomes more possible than it was before. And these sorts of applications are actually, I think, good in a, in a relatively free system and an accountable system. To your question of what happens when government tracks you too much, when these sensors track you too much, I think is still a relevant question and one that's gonna become more important, not less, in the coming years. So with the, with the technology, it seems that this could either go one or two different, different directions. With more data, this might potentially lead to more centralized planning, even at the local level, or it could go a different direction. Uh, it could lead to more distributed governance, I think that is one of the terms I see, or sort of more decentralization, sort of what I casually sometimes call Uberization. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about that, where, where you think that the technology can be used, sort of pros and cons in terms of whether it's going to lead to more centralized planning, which we conservatives are, tend to, to disfavor, versus more distributed governance and what that even means. In a sense, like smart cities kind of layer on to the old debates that we already have about the role of government, right? So you've got some folks that say, 
well, this is a this is a great way for us to you know achieve the outcomes of the old progressives from the from the early 20th century. You know, they wanted a government that that worked better and a government that was bigger and better too. And then you've got maybe folks more on the libertarian side that just hold down the kind of polar opposite approach that say actually with all this technology that's out there, we've we've actually empowered people and we've empowered citizens. And I think the ideal outcome, the one that we want, is for a smart city, however conceived and whatever particular technology that means, to actually be about empowering citizens and transforming government into more of a citizen-centric government rather than one that is built around government itself. That's the ideal outcome. That's what we want. And I think that as we are across any sort of policy, we have to remain vigilant for this technology to not become our master and to not empower the same people that desire to dictate our every movement and our every, every word that we issue and, and everything that we want to do in the marketplace. Because well, that's the danger here. This technology can be very, very powerful in the wrong hands. Well, and, and sort of to that point, we, you and I have talked about user experience as being a, a, you know, a, one of the potential uh, benefits of smart cities is the ability to improve the user experience when it comes to uh, the, the consumer of government services, so to speak. So with that in mind, from a sort of conservative or libertarian perspective, if we already have sort of this distaste for government and government services, should we be uh, look, looking at with a little bit of distrust of the idea of making government seem more compassionate, more uh, user-friendly, rather than keeping a stone-cold look about it so that people, people don't become too dependent upon government? Look, I, you know, the, the, this, is, this is perhaps going to be a big disagreement for me to other people, but I'm not in a camp that says we need to make government at every level so miserable and so terrible that we'll want to just kill it off right this is the classic you know it's 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 the it's the, the, the cousin of right right we'll, we'll make it we'll make it small enough that we can drown it in the bathtub we'll make it you know so terrible that we'll get everybody to become conservatives because everybody will hate government and everybody or everybody will become libertarian i don't think that's necessarily what we want I don't think government's going to disappear overnight, and I also happen to think that government does fulfill particularly important roles at at levels closest to us. So the closer the closer we get to, to local government and state government, the more we find government actually fulfilling roles that traditionally we as conservatives, maybe not so much libertarians, but as conservatives, we say, yeah, that is that is an important form of government. So government needs to do the basics well, right? So they're going to be maintaining a lot of local streets, sewers. Um, they are, for the time being, going to maintain a role in local education. So for as long as government fulfills those roles and probably tax us to pay for those things, we need to be asking, do we want it to suck or not suck? Do we want it to be relatively efficient and use our tax dollars well or incredibly wasteful? Do we want it to be a miserable DMV experience or not? I generally come down on the standpoint of saying it shouldn't suck. They should use our taxpayer dollars well, and it shouldn't be a miserable experience. And so that's where I see some hope for smart cities technology, is to make the user experience of government uh, better, cleaner, easier. I also see it having the potential to make government 
the entire journey through government for whatever whatever services they supply that we generally agree they should supply, make that entire journey through government is easy and transparent and seamless uh, as possible. And uh, and quite frankly, like as quick as possible as you can get the get the heck out, right? Um, and I think w- there's general agreement that we don't lack the technology to get to that point. What we do lack is political will and organizational capacity and buy-in to get to that point. And that's really what we need to be making a priority here. Getting our local political leaders to, it's getting more of our local political leaders to have the will to make the tough choices to force change within their bureaucracies. To, to go back to a comment you made earlier, it almost seems like there might be a, a pitch to Tradcons in terms of the, uh, the concept of subsidiarity. We could be promoting good governance, dealing with issues at the most localized level possible, possibly by uh, utilizing smart cities technology. Do you think that's possibly accurate? Yes, I think I think that's, a, that's potentially a huge application of smart cities technology. And I think is probably one of the better answers to get a little bit into political philosophy here. I think we should we should be more about more into our local governments. Uh, conservatives should become more about cities, more about making cities work better, uh, making their suburbs work better too. And technology ha- has a great potential, greater potential than a lot of what we've seen over the past couple of decades, greater potential than most to help empower that subsidiarity that I think we need now more than ever, particularly as no matter how you voted, no matter what your view is of, of this administration, I think we can all agree that we're in a moment in which D.C. just feels more broken than ever before. Some people call it swampy. And in that circumstance, I think we should be looking to whatever tools we have in our toolbox to help us move government a little closer to us, make it a little more accountable in the right areas, and use technology to be more of our ally than a foe. All right. Well, uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, so you just wrote an article published earlier this week on the subject of social capital. Uh, so mm. tell me, what is social capital and why is it important? Social capital is admittedly hazy concepts, but it's essentially about our life together. And it says, um, do we have strong ties together or not? Um, so this is not just a look at, do you yourself have lots of human capital, talent and knowledge and ability. And it's not a look at physical capital. Do we have lots of buildings and industry in the form of factories? Um, And it's not even about financial capital. How much money do we have? But it's about the things we hold together. And it's saying, do we, it points to things like um, healthy relationships, uh, strong community organizations like Rotary Clubs. It looks at the health of our families are they holding together or not? It looks at our churches. It looks at all these things that exist between man and state, things that traditionally conservatives have valued a lot. It's not just been about the individual. It's been about the individual as a social animal and essentially saying that what exists between man and state, those institutions and the glue that holds them together in the form of social capital, that actually is where we find the strength of this country. And potentially, if it's if our social capital is falling, potentially could be our greatest our greatest weakness. And so essentially what I was saying is that we need to actually be taking stock of our social capital in America because both right and left now are saying things are not as good as we thought they were in this country. We can make more money than ever before, but you've got the left pointing to a bowling alone effect. You've got the right 
saying that we're coming apart. And both say, something just feels wrong. So in one of my latest articles, I pointed to a great report from a Joint Economic Committee uh, on the Hill group led by Senator Mike Leet of Utah. It came out with an attempt to measure the state of social capital in America. And it pointed to a bunch of things that could kind of serve as reflections of social capital. So it would look at crime and family health and um, volunteering and all sorts of different things and stick it all together and say, does this seem to be an accurate take of the health of our associational life? And it seems like it is. And it seems like it's so good that we should be looking at it. We should be using it as a lens to look at other things happening in, in our lives together that, uh, that maybe need some explaining. Like, how do we get Donald J. Trump as president? And that's kind of what I was hinting at without much of a conclusion. But instead of just saying like, hey, guys, we should really be paying attention to social capital and social disconnectedness as an explainer. And rather than flying in reporters to, you know, random diner in middle America to try to get some anecdata uh, to explain this new political moment, maybe we should actually look to a set of data that we have in front of us that seems pretty accurate to say, why did a certain county vote a certain way or state vote a certain way? What's really going on and how can we be better tailoring policy and getting policymakers to care about the health of our life together? This seems to be sort of focusing on what you might say almost an emotional or spiritual health of communities. And it sounds like it's trying to use sort of economic terminology. And if you think about economics as a field that, uh, you know, practitioners of economics try to make it scientific. If... It, with that in mind, is it possible in this field to really generate enough data to t really uh, promote data mining and actually produce anything measurable and useful for, for purposes of public policy? So I think that in public policy, for better or for worse, we measure what we care about. We care about whether or not we've got money and whether we're making more of it. Uh, we measure with producing goods and things. We we care about education. So we measure all these things. Now, sometimes we can get too enamored with it, and it can, it can have bad data, and we can make bad decisions based on bad data. But nevertheless, it's, it's, it says we care about this. And the great thing about measuring social capital is it says we're going to look at the health of our relational life like we do our GDP. And by measuring it, we can say we value it. And... Um, and then over the long haul, we can say to policymakers, look, you know, you say you're going to invest in things that you can actually see or measure or do something about. And so you often ignore community um, because what does it even mean? Uh, what does our institutions mean? I can't, I can't, you know, tweak it with policy. Well, you probably still can't tweak it with policy, but you can view the lens of all of your decisions in the framework of does it increase the health of our life together or decrease it? Does it build more ties together or not? Does it help our families, our communities, our institutions or not? And by having sort of a handy measure, social capital index is not perfect, but it's I think it's better than what we've had before. We can actually help policymakers make better, wiser decisions that take into account the health of our life together rather than just forgetting it and just wishing for the best. You recently wrote a, uh, an article, I believe the title was, Silicon Valley Should Disperse Itself Across the Country for Fresh Ideas. Well, first off, I'm assuming that the word should there is you think it's a good idea as opposed to you think that the government should tell Silicon Valley to do this. Uh, but tell us why you think that uh, Silicon Valley should consider 
decentralizing. Yeah, I think Silicon Valley should break itself up. Shouldn't be government. Shouldn't be antitrust. Shouldn't be. It shouldn't be Europeans telling us to break up Silicon Valley because that's what's happening now. Silicon Valley right now is so tied to Silicon Valley as a place. So right now, when we think of Silicon Valley, we're actually referring not simply to the place, but to really this kind of tech economy that happens to be severely concentrated in just one corner of the country. And I'm arguing that it's in the interest of that tech economy to disperse itself across the country for a couple different reasons. Um, one is it's a hedge against our totally insane politics today. Um, the other is that it's it's a way to tap into a wellspring of ideas that are found across the country. One of the things that I point out in the article is that as it relates to politics, you know, right now, Washington is kind of breathing down the neck of Silicon Valley. D.C. is sort of its nemesis and antithesis. It's, it's, it's a bunch of people who are risk mitigators taking on the risk takers. And this kind of clash is playing along the lines of D.C.'s own game. So great example of this is when, you know, Silicon Valley wants to take on autonomous vehicles or Silicon Valley wants to take on healthcare. These are areas very different than creating Candy Crush. These are areas that relate to areas that, you know, government has traditionally regulated. We've, we've often given government a role in ensuring health and safety, safety of our roads, making sure we're not getting any crashes, making sure we're not getting bad drugs. Like we've, government can go too far in those areas, but we've generally been okay with government providing some sort of, you know, inf source of information and safety and trust in the marketplace. And so as, as, so as Silicon Valley moves into these arenas, government is beginning to pay attention in the way that they never did before. Not only that, we see the Valley moving um, physically into D.C.'s territory. You know, when I first moved to D.C. in 2009, the tech community had a very light footprint there. Now you have tech lobbyists crawling through every corridor of, of Capitol Hill. And in one respect, that makes a lot of sense. I'm actually glad that there's a voice for the tech community in D.C. But there's a danger that the more that politicians see the tech community face-to-face, -face, the more they may find reasons to attack it, critique it, hate it, or not even understand it. And that's a danger. And it's the same danger that the Silicon Valley has had by, by staying in their own bubble in, in San Francisco, where they could be, you know, regulated uh, and, and, and nobody seems to care in, in D.C. So I think, so you've got the political problem, but you also have the idea problem. So, you know, there's an incredible wellspring of ideas that have come traditionally out of Silicon Valley, but you kind of get the sense there now that it's kind of being tapped out. There's, uh, there's really only so much you can, uh, you can come up with that are all variations on what the young you know, tech bro in his fleece jacket wanted as he lives in the basement yearning for mom's washing machine and says, oh, if only I had the rinse app. You know, I love, the, you know, the rinse app is great, but it's all fulfilling the same sort of role that mom once did. And we've been able to come up with lots of great ideas uh, in the app economy, you know, to come up with lots of great ideas and technology in, in the Valley, but, but it seems to be reaching its limits. And one thing that's kind of well-established in, um, in a lot of literature that I've read is that, uh, is that you need to, you know, ideas come through social networks. And so if you want new ideas, you need to tap into new networks. 
and I think you're more likely to find those new networks in St. Louis, Nashville, Austin, Salt Lake City than you are in the same old, same old one that you've had in, uh, in Silicon Valley. So they should get out. They should, the venture capitalists should um, spread, should tap into some of the networks um, that they see in a place like Raleigh, North Carolina. Move some portion of their partnership and portfolio companies there. And similarly, some of the major tech firms should take a page from Google uh, or Amazon and move some significant portion of their uh, headquarters or activities to other parts of the country. Now, there is a reason why there's been so much clustering in the Valley for so long. I mean, you can make a lot of money that way. And there is a high opportunity cost to moving away from those deep roots that you've established in the Valley. But I think when it all wash comes, you know, washing out in the end, that that short-term hit will be essentially an investment in a long-term sustainable investment in America's heartland and in the rest of this country that's going to be sustainable politically and be sustainable economically as they tap into new ideas and new networks across the country. I think we'll all be better off that way. Okay, now let's talk about the youth. The youth. Yes, Uh, because you recently wrote an article, uh, Conservatives in the Age of the Millennials. Not quite and sure I must confess, case. I wrote it as a millennial myself. Okay, all right. Well, I'm uh, I'm not a millennial. I just want to state for the record, I was born in the 1970s and uh, therefore would be considered Generation X, I suppose. Um, well, to be fair, I'm now apparently what's being called an old millennial. Just so, right. are you an are you an old millennial? No, I would be Generation X. My wife okay. is. My wife would be a millennial, uh, but. Uh, but 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 not me. Uh, young people, they're not digging uh, conservative ideas. Uh, so what's uh, what's the problem? Yeah. So you've got a lot of you got a lot of millennials that call themselves socialists, and not a lot of them that call themselves conservative. And you've got the sense that this could be sticking around as a trend for longer than we ever thought possible. So we've got we've got young people growing old. And unlike prior generations, they aren't getting more conservative as they get older. We've also got interesting demographic trends where even when we can look at Gen Z, so the generation that follows uh, millennials, um, for them, there's been some signs that they are you know, more in favor of, of, of you know, people owning guns and you know, not overly regulating that. Maybe they're more skeptical of, you know, socialized medicine. But, but at the end of the day, the demographics, no matter, no matter the, you know, comings and goings and trends of any particular candidate like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the new democratic socialist that everybody's getting a tizzy on today, um, that no matter what happens with those candidates, they're just the fundamental realities are these new generations, particularly Gen Z, are more diverse than ever before. And even if, so just assuming if these new generations, these younger generations voted as their parents did, they would be more liberal than ever before. Meaning if, um, say, a young black man or woman voted just as their parents did, or a young Hispanic woman, young Asian woman or man, they voted just as their parents did, there's going to be such a great, such a greater presence of them and their peers in the younger generations that it will just inherently make them more liberal, let alone the enticement of certain candidates or certain idea du jour. So 
that should give conservatives some pause. Whatever this article kind of saying was, I don't want us to freak out, though. I don't want us to freak out in the wrong ways. I want us to be concerned, but I don't want us to trade away our very principles. What you often see is this tendency to either uh, blithely dis- dismiss the young people, like, you know, kids these days, they're going to make dumb decisions, let them do that, they'll come back to us eventually. Well, I hate to tell you, there's not really, like, I don't know if you have evidence for that just yet. There's also a tendency among others to just say, well, it's just a messaging problem. Like, if we just massage the messaging, we'll be fine. But the one that really concerns me is this sense of like, well, okay, let's 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 spread out the polling data and say, okay, well, millennials like this and they don't like that. They want a little bit more of this and a lot more of that. Okay, so if we just like tweak the platform a little bit and adjust this and tweak that, like we'll be fine. And especially if we just get rid of, you know, all focus on social issues, if we just get rid of all this other kind of stuff. As long as we're not raising taxes, God forbid, that's that's the one thing we can't touch, you know, we'll be fine. And I don't even want to question whether or not that is necessarily the, you know, that, that you should tweak that policy or another. I think there's a lot there's a lot we can do to craft 21st century policies for 21st century concerns. But I think that if we have a poll-driven approach to appealing to the next generation – we risk making the same mistakes that I think we made in this election, where we where we pick and continue to pick candidates that you know maybe want to appeal just simply to the older demographic and the wider demographic. You mean in and the 2016 election? In the 2016 election, where we wind up, what what ends up being sacrificed is not necessarily electoral victory. We can be successful in the short term. We end up sacrificing our principles. We end up chucking them out in favor of polls. And that is what I want us to stay away from. It's a it's a complicated question how principles and pragmatic stuff interact when it comes to you know a political movement or a party or something like that. Because uh, of course you don't you don't want to just abandon all your principles because there's a bad poll or something. Uh, on the other hand, at the end of the day, political movements aim to see their vision of what is best enacted into policy. And to do that, you have to actually appeal to people and win them over. And, uh, you know, that's what um, what might be within the realm of the possible here in Texas, for example, could be quite different from what would be uh, within the realm of the possible in, say, New York State, uh, let alone France. So it's obviously it's a it's a it's a vast, complicated mess of an issue. Yeah, the problem I think is when you get the activist po- uh, pollsters and strategists uh, driving the entire train, and when you say rightfully so, you should have candidates that appeal to the particular interests of you know a Texas district, and I completely agree. I note that in my article. That's actually where you will probably get some diversity of opinion, you know, on the right. But the the challenge is when it becomes all about the fight or all about the messaging and all about the positioning without any real sense of what it is that we actually believe. What, 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 what are we actually doing here? What are we actually in this fight for? And I think that's actually where the real, where the real shortfall is today is um, we just don't have any sense of what the sole American idea project is. Uh, in fact, I think that's where we should put our big, our big concern is like actually telling a story of the right and of conservatism that is an open invitation to all people 
is a story of how we came to this moment and a story of what that means for the future. Um, I think this is what folks in the sort of reform conservatism movement, may it rest in peace, were trying <laughs> to do. Um, and we sort of got the, the evil twin of that. You know, the reform conservative approach was all about saying, like, we need 21st century policies for 21st century concerns, but that are all based on timeless principles, a vision for, you know, something I mentioned earlier, the middle spaces of society. And everything that we're going to do is going to be, you know, we're going to have an answer for the gig economy, but it's going to be about emphasizing the value of work, and of family, and of community, all based on this kind of theory as well that this will help us appeal to a very distinct uh, need today, which is to answer longings of the the working class and the middle class. And in a sense, we got that. We we got candidates that wanted to appeal to the to the to the working class and in particular the white working class, but not necessarily without that same sense of what our philosophical roots were to begin with. It was it was something much more guttural and you know basic. And uh, I think that's I think it's a dangerous approach to take in the long haul. That makes sense. But in the meantime, while we're working on that messaging. Don't you think that our focus right now should be spending as much time as possible owning the libs? And drinking their tears. They're so good. Yes, yes. Um, I think everybody should just uh, live their lives on on Twitter, uh, not even relate to other people. And um, just make sure that every day, the moment you wake up, that you are doing all you can to to own the libs. Um, That's the only way we're going to make, really make everything uh, great again. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. I can't wait for the Chamber of Commerce on the Moon Colony. There will be a chamber for the Space Force.